The text of the sermon tonight is found in the little book of James. We've been studying that book and reading through it. And uh, this sermon tonight is the, is the finish of the one last Sunday. I know all week you've just been waiting to get to the end of this sermon. And that's probably what you're doing right now, just waiting to get to the end of this. Now, we didn't have the worksheets. Uh, somehow we, missed, uh, we messed up and we didn't get any extra worksheets, but it's the same worksheet you had last Sunday night. I hope you brought it back because if you're here for the first time, some of you are, Sunday nights we work through taking notes and working through and just kind of reading and studying God's Word uh, kind of verse by verse. And we are talking about the, the wisdom that's from God and the wisdom that's from below. And understanding that, that the, when you see this in the context that you know that, that when one lives according to the mind of God and to the wisdom that comes from Him, that His lifestyle communicates a message that is supportive of the message that he communicates with his lips. You remember that when we came through here the first time, we talked about the fact that so often what we say, the sin of the tongue, is an ineffective and damaging witness. And then in that context, we, have to, we, we recognize or we see that that before we can be, we can give or have a witness with our lips, there has to be the support of our life. A communicator once said that 6% of what one says a person hears and understands. That's kind of frightening. After all, uh, I'm a, supposed to be a communicator to just to think that only 6% of what I say you get. 50% of communication is nonverbal, that is, the expressions of the face, and 44% in communication is the tone of the voice, and only 6% of communication involves what a person says. Um, I think that we've made some distinct and definite decisions, some of us have, at Falls Creek. I heard in devotional time, I want to be a better witness. I want to give a witness. I've, um, I've heard several say, I've made promise to God that I'm going to come back and begin to witness for Christ. And I'm here to declare that before one can give an effective witness with his lip, there has to be the support of that witness in his life. A long time before I found anything about, out about the Scripture, we used to sing that old song that B.B. McKinney wrote, Your life's a book before their eyes, they're reading it through and through. Say, does it point them to the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? Now, I want you to get this tonight. I want you to get it good. I want you to see that if you can 
manifest and live out the characteristics of the mind of Christ in verse 17. If you can live these out, I promise you that your life will be a witness and that it will be not the substitute but the support of your verbal witness. And you'll notice that when we go down through here that you're not going to see a thing in here about how many times you go to church or how much money you give or how many times you pray publicly. You're going to see something totally different from that. You're going to see the kind of lifestyle that supports a verbal witness. And I promise you this again, that if you live out the characteristics that are described in verse 17, you will turn this town on its ear in witness. Number one, a life that supports an effective witness in verse 17 is a life of purity. The word means to be free from stain. Out of that Greek root comes the word and its derivatives of catharsis, which means to turn somebody, turn inside out to somebody. It means to be washed and cleansed. It means to be pure from defilement. It means to have an experience of an inner cleansing. It's the picture of a man, a surgeon, who is scrubbing up before surgery and he's ridding himself of all defilement and he lives in a germ-free environment as he does his work. He is pure. It's the picture of milk that's unadulterated and wine without any impurity. It's the picture of steel with all the impurities burned from it. It means to be pure from stain. Now I know as I preach this tonight, I know that there are those of us who are already thinking in our minds of the things that are in our life that are, are a violation to the holiness of God. There is impurity. And it goes one step beyond that. It means to have pure motives. It means not only to have a pure life, but to have that pure life for the right reason. It means to get all of our motives in the right order and in the right way. It means to have pure motives and a cleansed life. And Jesus said, Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. Now you and I understand and know that what he's talking about when he says that does not mean that man will see God with his eye, for no man has ever seen God. But it means that the man who has his life cleansed and lives a life of purity, practices the presence of God, lives and beholds the certainty of God. In the midst of every encounter of life, he's aware of the nearness of God. So that if you're going to have that verbal witness, that verbal testimony of life, there must first of all be cleansing. There must be purity. Is your life pure? Secondly, 
there is peaceableness. Did you see it in verse 17? Wisdom from above is pure than peaceable. I was noticing the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, and immediately after that comes blessed are the peacemakers in the order of the Beatitudes. So that really James is kind of drawing perhaps from the teaching of Jesus, and this is kind of James' Beatitude. There is purity of life, and then there is the life of the one who is peaceable. Blessed are the peacemakers. For it is only those who are pure in heart who can be peacemakers. There are some people I know and you know who are the centers of controversy. They're, e they're either starting trouble or they're in the midst of it. it just, trouble just kind of swarms around them like bees around a honeycomb. The life that is used of God, the life that supports the verbal testimony is the life of the man who is not being the trouble or causing the trouble, but he's the person who is getting in the trouble and is bringing about peace. Somebody said the problem with a bridge builder is that he gets walked, stepped on from both ends. The man that Jesus is talking about in his beatitude and James is talking about in his little beatitude is the person who is able to just kind of pour, to kind of pour oil on the troubled waters and salve over the wounds and bring peace. J. Howard Williams was president of Southwestern Seminary. The thing that was characteristic of that man was his gentle, sweet, humble, attitude of peacemaking. Gordon Kleinard wrote a biography on, on uh, J. Howard Williams. Sometime you might want to read that. And the biography says that one day he was, uh, Kleinard was visiting with a church where J. Howard Williams was interim when he died. It was a church that was just kind of torn apart with controversy and dissension and disunity. And one of the men said, the thing about J. Howard Williams was that you could never gossip and you could never get angry and you could never be controversial when there was that man who loved so much in our midst. The third characteristic of a life that supports a witness is gentleness. He wants his rights. He demands his rights. This is what is mine and I want it. The man who is gentle is the man who knows the time when to relax his demand upon his rights to a higher demand. And there's an Old Testament illustration of it. I want you to turn with me to the 13th chapter of Genesis. 13th chapter of Genesis. And I want to begin reading at verse 7. And the story is the story of Abraham and Lot. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. 
Then Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or to the right, then I will go to the left. Yea, hooray for Abram. It's a picture of a person who says, in essence, this is my right, this is what is mine, this is what is I deserve, but you take it. There are going to be times, and the times are not too far in the distance, when you're going to be confronted, young people, with this decision. What is your right? What do you have a right to demand for yourself? And the witness of a person who says, I am willing to give up my rights for what you need and what you want is the witness of a work of God in a person's life because that just does not come naturally. Number four, he is a person who is reasonable. In verse 17, this is the only time this word is used in the Bible. It means easily persuaded. It means the opposite of stubborn. It means conciliatory. It means to be open and teachable. It means to place our life in a position to be molded, to be taught. Somehow I don't know what has happened, but perhaps it's because of the, uh, of the testimonies of the young people. And I, this sermon just kind of seems to, to be to them. One night I was sitting in my living room and I was listening to some teachers of a youth department and they were pouring out their heart to me and they were in love shedding tears of concern and they were telling me what I already knew one of our big problems, they said, is that so many of our young people are not willing to be taught. So that whatever we say, now I didn't say that was here, so don't jump to conclusion. Whatever we say, it seems that it just kind of falls on deaf ears. I wonder what happens when we get to a place like Falls Creek and everything that's said before is said again, but it sounds different there. And everything that's been preached before is preached there. Nothing new, nothing said differently. And the Bible studies that we go to, the same thing is said, 
but it just sounds different there. And it just makes a stronger impact there. You know why? Because somehow we're able to withdraw ourselves to a place and we're able to place ourselves in a position that we are teachable and open. We, we place ourselves in a position, in an environment where everybody's trying to discover God's plan and God's will and we say, okay, now tell us we're here to learn. We're here to be taught. Oh, what can happen in a person's life, both young and old, if he has that attitude of reasonableness. I am open now. Tell me, show me, teach me, mold me. I'm in your hands. And so these young men that came to Tim talked with him into the wee hours of the night, teachable and open, and he communicated to them then and was able to teach them. Why? Same, Tim, because they were open to him. Number five. He says that that life that, is a, that gives support to a verbal witness is full of mercy and good fruit. Now, in the first century, this, this word mercy in the Greek world referred to the attitude a person has when somebody accidentally gets in trouble. But in this text, in this passage, it refers to the attitude one has toward another when that person deliberately gets into trouble, chooses to get into trouble. And there's a, there's a vast difference. Anybody can feel sorry for somebody who accidentally gets in trouble and, is, and, 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 and suffers the consequence for it, it takes a work of God in a person's life to have compassion and mercy and concern and sympathy and empathy for one who deliberately gets in trouble. And he connects that attitude of mercy with good fruit. For somebody said, you can't really talk about being merciful until you've tried to help somebody else. You can't say you're merciful until you try to do something to help someone. Did you see that cartoon a few years ago? Probably didn't. Of a man squatting on his haunches and he has an empty pan in front of him. You, he's hungry. And there's a man standing in front of him, well-dressed, obviously rich, and he has a bag on his back and the bag has on it words. And he's dumping that, those words in the man's empty dish. And under the, cart under, the, uh, under the cartoon is this caption, too many words and not enough deeds. Oh, we talk a good story, don't we? Too many words and not enough deeds. Then six, he is a man who is unwavering. There it is in verse 17. Now it seems like a contradiction, doesn't it, where we talk about being reasonable and gentle, yielding to another, and then all of a sudden he talks about being unwavering. What he means by that is that a person who has a verbal witness has a life of conviction. He has conviction to some 
fixed principles. He will never violate biblical principles. He's not afraid to make a decision based on Scripture. He has some conviction about him. Now, if there are too many words, sometimes the words we say fall on deaf ears because we have no real, strong, solid conviction. And our conviction is not based, fixed on biblical principle. Finally, the man who has, and this is where the water hits the wheel, I think, the person who has a strong witness is a person who is, he said, without hypocrisy. You know what that word means? It comes from a word that means an actor. Hypocritos is the word. And in the Greek theater, you've seen in, in pictures of the Greek theater, ancient theater, and they just wore masks. One guy might play two parts. He would, be, he would play the part of a man who was funny, a comic, and so he just put on a mask, and he, the mask was at the end of a stick, and he just held this mask to his face. And he'd come out, say a few funny lines. He'd go off the stage, take the other mask, the mask of sorrow, tragedy. It would be a sad face. He'd hold that in front of him. wasn't too effective, but they didn't have skilled actors, and they didn't have what we have in the theater to make people up, so they had to get by with the best they could. They were, they were hypocrites. It means that they played, one man played two parts. Doesn't that word sound terrible? Doesn't it hurt when somebody says, you're a hypocrite. You're playing two parts. Man, I tell you, when you want to get right down where it hurts, you let somebody start talking about hypocrites. Because we all know our guilt. I was a poor scout. My family lived way out in the country. So I didn't get to take scouting, but I wanted to because my other my friends did, and so Daddy let me go a few weeks. First thing he did was learn how to tie knots, and we made knot boards. And uh, you had to make all these knots and put them on this little board. I didn't know how to tie one, not one. All I knew was tie your shoe. That wasn't on the board. And I was worried about taking my knot board. My Daddy said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it for you. The night of the Boy Scout meeting, just about time to go, he brought in this beautiful knot board. I mean, it was, it was great. Somebody fixed it for him. Had all the knots on there, had the, had the, had the rope around the edge, had a little, little piece of board with my name on it, made out of rope, hanging on the bottom of it. Man, it was as classy as ain't or. I, I just knew I was gonna win first place. I took it up there, entered it in, looked at all the rest of them. Man, nothing to it. I had him one. Put his knot board there. 
Nobody could dispute that. Scoutmaster met with us and he said, Now, boys, did everybody, not boy, these not boys, did you make those or did your daddy? Everybody, you know, I made it. Everybody joined in. I knew, of course, I was lying. But I wanted that trophy. When they passed out the ribbons, passed out the trophy, I didn't even get one. I couldn't figure out why. I didn't get a, I didn't get a trophy. It was the best one there. Anybody could see that. Scoutmaster took me off the side and said, Gerald, you know why I didn't give you a trophy for that knot board? I said, no, I'd like to know. He said, because that knot board wasn't you. Folks, when we stand before God, He doesn't hand out awards to hypocrites. You ever read Aesop's fables? They're not too religious, but there's one I read not long ago, kind of stood out. Man saw a friend, he was, it was cold, and he was blowing his hands. Blowing his hands. He said, man, what are you doing? He said, I'm blowing my hands, they're cold, and I'm warming them. The next day, he saw his friend eating soup. He'd take a spoon of soup, hold it to his lips, and blow him, blow him friend said, man, what are you doing? He said, the soup is hot and I'm cooling it off. Aesop's fable said the man turned and fled saying, I'm not going to be associated with that fool who is able to blow hot and cold out the same mouth. So you want, you want a life that's a witness? Yeah, you bet. Let me tell you something. You can't do it and play two parts. Will you join with me in prayer? seems to me that God is in this place. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Seems to me that there's, there's time for decision tonight. Time for rededication of life. Time for selling out to God. Time for quit playing games. Time to join His church. Time to commit ourselves to Him in salvation. Time to be saved. Couldn't be a better time than this one. Time for those of us who are playing both sides of the street, both ends of the field. It's time for us to get off or to get on.
Father. I don't know what you're doing in this place tonight, but I sense your presence here. And I'm aware, God, that as I preach to others, I have so much in my own heart and life that bespeaks against, militates against, screams against what I say. And oh God, I pray that I could have an inner cleansing tonight, be pure, pure of mind, pure of heart, pure of motive. And I pray that I might find that place of yieldedness to be taught by others and by life itself to be molded shaped Father I'm tired of playing those games we play being one thing one time and another thing another oh God I want to want to be like Jesus. And I pray, God, that there will be those of us tonight who would say the same. Pastor, I've got a long way to go, but I want to begin to walk. Draw us, Father, to, these, to this altar, to this place of decision. This is my prayer. Only for Jesus' sake. In his name I pray it. Now Jim's going to.